0: This is Guns and
1: Butter. There's just things, that, there's no way you could know what to do unless you actually live in Cuba. There's just all of this kind of hustling. There's, there's so many things that you have to do to survive that are illegal. Um, it's, it's very, for a country that prides itself on a revolution, that they've got this revolutionary spirit and elan, and, but day to day you have to do something illegal probably to survive is very undermining of Cuban socialism. And the government realizes this is a problem and they've tried various changes and reforms.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Reese Ehrlich. Today's show, Dateline Havana. Rhys Ehrlich is a full-time print and broadcast freelance reporter. He reports regularly for CBC, ABC Australia, Radio Deutsche Welle, and National Public Radio. His articles appear in the San Francisco Chronicle and the Dallas Morning News. His article about the U.S. use of depleted uranium ammunition was voted the eighth most censored story in America for 2002-2003 by Project Censored at Sonoma State University. Reese Ehrlich first worked as a staff writer and research editor for Ramparts magazine in San Francisco from 1963 to 1975. Reese Ehrlich is author of The Iran Agenda, The Real Story of U.S. Policy and the Middle East Crisis, and co-author of Target Iraq, What the News Media Didn't Tell You, which became a bestseller. His latest book, Dateline Havana, The Real Story of U.S. Policy and the Future of Cuba, was published in January 2009. On April 8, 2009, he spoke at Sonoma State University for Project Censored. Rhys Ehrlich.
1: Uh, I want to thank... Project Censored, particularly Peter Phillips, for inviting me here. Project Censored is an important institution, uh, recognized uh, nationally. I don't know if you realize how significant it is being the home base for it, but all across the country, when people when that little part about me having won a Project Censored award is very impressive to audiences and journalism schools and places around the country when I speak. So it's a real pleasure to be here tonight. I've traveled to Cuba now uh, since. 1968, for over 40 years. I've been there 11 times. Uh, My first trip was for a month in 1968. My most recent trip was a month last year in which I had a chance to live in Havana and travel around the country. You can write anything you want about Cuba that's negative, and there's no downside to that as a reporter. But if you write a story that is generally positive towards Cuba but has one error in it, well, then the roof caves in. And since this is a project-censored event and and audience, I thought it would be worth going into in some detail exactly why is it that so much of the coverage that we get in the mainstream dailies, whether it's the New York Times or the Washington Post or CNN, you name it, uh, so much of this this, um, coverage of Cuba is distorted, is simply wrong. It's either just wrong information or a combination of wrong information with very strange interpretations. And the, what I'm going to talk about would apply to U.S. media coverage in other places in the world as well, but we could focus in on Cuba. During one trip to Cuba, I stayed at a hotel with a reporter from the New York Times who happened, by coincidence, happened to be staying at the same hotel. And every breakfast, every morning, we'd come down around the same time for breakfast and we'd chat about the stories we'd been working on, etc. And it was very revealing because this guy was by no means a conservative. In fact, his name is often considered, he's often considered one of the more liberal reporters from the New York Times. But I'm not going to mention his name because he wasn't being formally interviewed. But I talk about this in in greater detail in the book. But what he said was the afternoon that he arrived in Cuba, the first thing he did was go to the U.S. Embassy. Not the U.S. Embassy, the U.S. Intersection. Uh, We we don't have full diplomatic relations with Cuba, but there is a a giant building in Havana that functions as an embassy. It's called an interest section. And the Cubans have an interest section in Washington, D.C. Same thing. And he met with the political officer. Now, for those of you who don't know, the political officer in any given U.S. embassy around the world is the CIA station chief. That's his diplomatic cover. So... He sat down and he met with them. And these guys, I've met with them in other countries. I didn't do it in Cuba. But they're usually very sophisticated. They're not blatant propagandists or, uh, you know, thumping for torture now or something like that. They make a great deal of study of the uh, situation economically and politically. And they give a very sophisticated analysis of what's going on. and they make suggestions for stories that you might want to take up. Not that, of course, that you have to do it, but you might be interested in the stories. And oh, by the way, since I know you'll want to talk to the dissidents, uh, here's a couple names and phone numbers of people that you can contact. All right, very subtle. So the New York Times reporter, he certainly does not consider himself a stenographer for those in power. He's an independent journalist, and so he didn't take up all the story ideas, but he took up some of them. And what had happened in a very subtle process was the CIA had framed the stories. He came with certain stories in mind. The CIA added to that, he added additional information. So you automatically have one half of the story, you know, if you're supposed to present two sides to a story – One side is already set there, created by the CIA. And that's over half the battle because you combine the prejudices that the reporters bring with them to Cuba with this orientation that they get from the CIA, and pretty soon it's understandable why all the stories start looking the same. You know, there's only about five stories that you ever get about Cuba. It's amazing. There's an entire country with people doing things all the time, and you've got a story about the economic crisis in Cuba, the political crisis in Cuba, uh, perhaps the hurricanes, uh, since that seems to be a big thing, um, the dissident story, and the baseball story. And that's pretty much it. And you can do a search of all of the daily news coverage of Cuba, and with a couple of exceptions. That's pretty much all the stories that you get. let me focus in for a second on the dissident story, because that's one that is often confusing to people. And you know what I'm talking about, because it's the story that you read all the time. Um, heroic independent librarians fill in the blank here heroic uh, independent journalists uh, heroic uh, bloggers you, uh, like I said fill in the blank uh, repressed by the horrible totalitarian Cuban government um, yoni Sanchez blogger tries to speak out for freedom and is not allowed to travel to Spain to pick up her award so and so independent librarian has their library shut down etc uh, etc cetera, et cetera. Now, when you dig a little bit deeper into these issues, and by the way, uh, I, and I will talk about this in more in detail, there's plenty of things to complain about in Cuba. There's plenty of things to be dissent about. And all you have to do to find a dissenter in Cuba is spend about five minutes on the streets in any city in Cuba because people will give you an earful. That should tell you something about how, what a horrible totalitarian dictatorship it is, is if within five minutes to a complete stranger from America, no less, uh, and a reporter. They're talking to you on the record about all their complaints, usually about the economy. That's what it, it fo- focuses in on, although you'll hear complaints about racism and sexism and all kinds of other problems as well. So it's not the totalitarian dictatorship that we're led to believe. People have plenty of complaints. But there's a difference between ordinary Cubans who have plenty of complaints and the what I call professional dissidents, and those are the ones that we hear about normally are the professional dissidents and uh, what exactly is the process? Um, people, people who have these complaints, often intellectuals, um, are contacted by the u s embassy or the u s intersection they 're invited over for dinner to the chief of intersection they're chat they 're you know encouraged uh, in their efforts, maybe they 're given access to the high speed internet at the u s intersection, which is uh, a real prize because uh, free Internet access of a high-speed nature is, is uh, really precious in Cuba. It's not all that uh, available. Um, and you're given, uh, you know, free dinner, and you're told what a great hero you are, and they butter you up, and pretty soon you're put on the U.S. payroll. Now, I don't mean that um, metaphorically. I mean that as in hard greenbacks <laughs> paid to you in cash on a monthly basis. How do we know this? Well... Uh, It's been repeated numerous times over the years. The most recent example was last year. There's a woman named Marta Beatriz Roque, who is a very well-known dissident. You can read about her all the time in the major media. Uh, I interviewed her when I was there, um, which means, you know, how did I find her? I called her up and made an appointment and walked over to her house (laughs) and walked over to her apartment and and as I did with a number of other dissidents so nobody's like under police guard or has mobs in front of their house or something like that and she told me she's in favor of a free enterprise system and uh, she visits lots of embassies not just the United States and you know, she's an independent person fighting for freedom of speech and freedom of uh, dissent in Cuba well it turns out uh, last year in a series of press conferences that the Cuban government held for the foreign press, uh, they presented email messages and tap phone calls and text messages from Marta Beatriz Roque and the chief of interest sections, the U.S., basically the U.S. ambassador, um, that she was complaining about her, her money being late and her phone was uh, running out of credits, her, tele, her, her cell phone, because she did, wasn't getting her payments on time. And same thing for the Damas en Blanca, the the ladies in white. There's another group that's often uh, held up. They're uh, a group of wives and women relatives of uh, people held in prison, political prisoners. And they're on the payroll as well. And they were complaining about how their payments were late. And so it turns out a guy named Santiago Alvarez, who is a very, very well-known right-wing Cuban in Miami – close friends with Luis Posada Carriles, if that name means anything to you, one of the most vicious terrorists who's who's admitted to, for example, bombing and killing civilians in Havana Hotel bombing raids in the 90s. Um, Santiago Alvarez met Parmley, the U.S. ambassador, uh, in the Miami airport, handed him a big wad of cash. Parmley went back to Havana and handed out the cash to these various dissidents. And this has been going on for a long time. And you say, oh, well, how can you be sure? That's propaganda by the... the, uh, Cuban government, uh, how do you know they didn't uh, make up these phone calls or something? Well, when an enterprising reporter asked Parmley about it in a State Department press conference, his response was, we reserve the right to promote democracy in Cuba. Parenthesis, yeah, so what? I did it. Big deal. (laughs) They never denied it, and they've never denied it in past incidents of this. So you have this kind of professional class of dissidents funded and encouraged by the United States, which is never mentioned in any of these dissident stories. Never, ever, ever. These people are quoted as if they are genuine heroes and supporters of freedoms in Cuba. And... Uh, It might be noted that the dissidents that the U.S. promotes are not just anybody with complaints about the system. They are specifically people whose complaints go in the direction of the kind of change the United States wants to see. If you're a dissident but you don't agree with the U.S. line, well, then you don't get the support. So it's a very conscious effort to develop a core of people that the U.S. can com- promote as freedom fighters and dissenters. They've done it in the old Soviet Union in the past. They do it in China today. So, And it's never mentioned at all in these stories about the dissidents. Now, there are very real problems with uh, a lack of civil liberties in Cuba. And again, I have a whole chapter in my book about uh, dissidents and democracy and the Internet. And there are roughly 209 political prisoners today in Cuba, down from many hundreds in recent years. It's been pretty much steadily going down. How do we know these figures? It's by a leading dissident that the United States promotes. He, he does a survey every six months and figures out how many political prisoners there are. So 209 political prisoners are too many. There should, there should be no political prisoners in Cuba as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but some of these folks are people who are on the payroll of the United States, Some are there mainly for advocacy. Um, I don't think there should be political prisoners at all. But just imagine for a moment, uh, remember it was Guantanamo, a part of Cuba, that held U.S. political prisoners for years where there were no trials, no uh, bail, no legal procedures whatsoever, but there's no contradiction there. And just imagine for a moment that if the situation had been reversed, let's say somebody in Cuba had handed the Cuban Ambassador, a big wad of money, he'd come to Washington, D.C., and began handing out cash to American revolutionaries. And when caught at it, said, Well, we have the right to support American revolution. Now, can you imagine what the reaction would be? That guy would be out of here, as would the whole Cuban diplomatic corps, not to mention arrests of all the people who accepted the money for being foreign agents. So, no country tolerates um, people being on the payroll of their arch enemy. Uh, no matter what the uh, excuses are. So it's important to, that that all be kept in mind. Now, Cuba is an absolutely fascinating country. Um, there are incredible debates and experiments and uh, things going on that would be of great interest to people in the United States if only we could go there. <laughs> um, you can visit Cuba, but you can't spend money there. That's the law. So that means as a practical matter, you can't go. Unless you're a journalist, which is legal like I did, or an academic doing research. There's certain exceptions. But for the vast majority of Americans, you can't go to Cuba. My biggest urging to you is go to Cuba and see for yourself. If you think it's a repressive society in which people are impoverished and hate their government, go there and find out. You'll meet some people like that. (laughs) You'll definitely meet some people like that. Uh, And you'll also meet a lot of people who support the revolution. And why? Because Education is free. That's kindergarten through PhD. And that's not just tuition, that's room and board, books, you name it, completely free, all the way through PhD.
0: You're listening to freelance reporter and author Reese Ehrlich. Today's show, Dateline Havana. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
1: Uh, healthcare is free, you know, at a time when we have millions and millions of people who have no health at all or have lost their health care. Um, it's completely free, again, from everything from a a cut to a heart transplant. Um, It is such a good medical system that foreigners, particularly from South America, come to Cuba to have operations because it's so much more affordable there than it would be in their home country. They have a subsidized cultural system whereby world-class symphony or ballet or jazz or popular music or dance uh, films, what, you name it, costs uh, Cuban 20 cents for admission to any of those events. For a, As a foreigner, you pay the equivalent of five bucks. And it's roughly the same. That is, 20 cents to a Cuban is roughly what five bucks just does to us. That is, it's very affordable. Um, and, and we're talking, in many cases, world-class cultural events. I went to the uh, Havana Symphony. Uh, Cuba is one of the least racist societies in the world, although racism is still a problem in Cuba. I did a story for NPR about the... Um, Havana Symphony, 40% of the symphony is Afro Cuban or black or or what they call mulatto or mixed race people. 45% are women. Now, what symphony in the United States can you point to that's got two black symphonic musicians, let alone 40%? And that's a direct function of the efforts over the years to not affirmative action for blacks, but affirmative action for poor people. And since a lot of poor people were black, They've risen into positions that they would have never been in before. Um, The famous Buena Vista Social Club, you're all familiar with the CD in the movie, I assume. Um, Buena Vista Social Club, it wasn't talked about in the movie, was an actual uh, social club that existed in the Marianao district of Havana. was all black. It was an all black club. Why? Because black Cubans weren't allowed to visit the jazz clubs or the nightclubs of the pro-U.S. Batista government of the 1940s and 50s. Black people were not allowed to go into the restaurants or the casinos. Those mob-run wonderful institutions that we see about, they hear so much about in old movies or or history books or whatever. It was a segregated society. U.S. corporations didn't hire black workers. The U.S., as part of bringing democracy to Cuba, remember after the Spanish-American War, the U.S. it was a direct colony for a while, and then was under U.S. control for many years after that. One of the things, one of the blessings of democracy that we brought to Cuba was southern-style Jim Crow racism. Uh, which had not existed in that intense form, even under the Spanish. So uh, that uh, elimination of that Jim Crow segregation was a no small achievement by the Cuban Revolution. Now, at the same time, there's lots and lots of problems in Cuba. I talked about the progress in racism. There's also a lot of racism, and you talk to young black men, and they will bitterly complain about being stopped regularly on the street by police and asked for their ID, basically doing ID checks, because they're black. And there's no question that that happens. There's no question that the higher up you go in Cuban society, the fewer black people you see. Uh, there's no question that there's lots of machismo and d- discrimination against women, discrimination against gays. And very, Even though they've made a lot of progress in that regard, it's still a very macho society and very lots of very bad prejudices against gays. Um, the economy, uh, all of those things pale by comparison to the problems of the economy. Um, you go out and basically Cuba today is split, not between... Uh, those in power and those uh, not in power or those with lots of money and those without lots of money. It's between those who have access to hard currency and those who don't. If you work in the tourism industry, you're a waiter or you're a taxi driver and you get dollars or what they call CUCs or convertible pesos. Or if you have relatives in Miami or Madrid or Caracas and you, they send you remittances, $200 a month, um, you can live very well with that hard currency. Why? Because you don't pay any rent. I've already mentioned you have free health care and free uh, education. Uh, there is subsidized food uh, at very, very cheap prices. The problem is a lot of times they don't have the food. Just like it's free health but you'll go in one day and to the polyclinic and you know, they'll have no x-ray film, so they can't do your x-ray that day. Or they'll write you a prescription for a free drugs, except they don't got the drugs. Uh, you go into the subsidized food store, and they're supposed to have eggs and meat and and oil, cooking oil, et cetera, et cetera, and three-quarters of the stuff isn't there. And you go back the next day, and there's another set of stuff that's not there. So the, the system is not working the way it's supposed to. So if you – but if you have hard currency, you can buy any of that. I, I live – I rented an apartment, and I've obviously I had dollars, um, and I was able to go to supermarkets and, and um, agros or farmer's markets and buy anything I needed. So it's not that there's, it's not there. The problem is if you, it's expensive if you don't have the, the hard currency. So that's kind of one set of people. Anybody who, have, for whatever reason, has access to hard currency. And other people, who are most Cubans, um, earn pesos, and they get the equivalent of uh, the average salary is about $16 a month, the equivalent of that. Now, remember, you get all of those subsidized things that I talked about before. But nevertheless, that 16 bucks a month is not enough to buy you enough food, for example, to to have an adequate diet because by the end of the month – the subsidized stores don't have the stuff. You go to the, to the agro, there's not there. Uh, there you know, it's too expensive, so you have to cut back. It's a constant struggle, and everybody's got some kind of a hustle going on. So everybody's got their regular job, and they've got something else that they're doing on the side. And it's usually legal or quasi-legal or illegal, Um, So it might be anything from a fisherman selling his fish. That's perfectly legal. Or somebody gets a license for their private car to drive as a taxi so they can make hard currency. That's fine. So you'll talk to the taxi drivers, and sometimes they'll be like cancer surgeons (laughs) or other people because they can make more money as a taxi driver than they can because they get paid in dollars or CUCs. Then then they can make for their salary, even though they're very well paid in pesos. It's not enough. And then uh, the other thing is that... uh, Pretty much every day, I was staying in. A, it was a duplex, and the people who uh, I was renting from were downstairs. There were friends of mine, and so they were helping me um, maneuver. There's just things. That, there's no way you could know what to do unless you actually live in Cuba, and and um, like for example, getting things fixed is just this crazy patchwork of. You have to know somebody who knows somebody. They're the repairman, like an air conditioner repairman, but then how do you find the parts? Well, they've got to know somebody else who might have the parts. It's not like you go down to the air conditioning store and buy the parts and come back and fix it. But my, my favorite one was um, every day some vendors would come by, uh, and sometimes they'd be fishermen selling their, their fish, which is perfectly legal, and got some really great deals. And then other times they'd be selling liquor or cigarettes or other things that were clearly not uh, produced themselves, shall we say. They were stolen. They were, they were somewhere stolen from a hotel or something, worked its way down until it comes down to the street level, and then you could buy it from one of these guys. Uh, basically, they come by, walk, they shout up to your, there's no intercom system in the apartments. You shout up, Oye, Ricardo! And then you, you shout down, and whatever it is that they're selling, then you figure out if you want to do it. And so one day, the, the woman oh, I was staying with, she said, Reese, I have a chance we can get lobster tails, but they're really expensive. I said, oh, wow so she showed me they're like really big, these frozen lobster tails like this. Now, they were not caught by fishermen and frozen that way. They were frozen for export and they got stolen. Now, keep in mind that you can't use your American credit cards there because the, there's no, because of the US embargo. So I had to bring cash. I, you know, imagine bringing enough cash. How do, how do you know how much money I had to pay for my rent and transportation? I had to rent a car. Well, you really have learned to appreciate what credit card. What good credit cards can do you when you don't have them, right? So I'm thinking to myself, all right, how much cash do I bring? Out? Can I afford to treat myself to lobster tails, you know? And I was, I, so finally, all this is flashing through my mind in a matter of seconds. And finally, I said, how much do they cost? And she says, $4 a piece. And I went, I'll take five. <laughs> and I was having lobster for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. All right. But for a Cuban, that's a lot of money. If you make twenty bucks a month, you can't afford to buy, pay four bucks for a uh, for a single lobster tail. But that gives you an idea that there's just all of this kind of hustling. There's there's so many things that you have to do to survive that are illegal. Um, It's it's very for a country that prides itself on a revolution that they've got this revolutionary spirit and elan, and but day to day you have to do something illegal probably. To survive is very undermining of Cuban socialism. And the government realizes this is a problem, and they've tried various changes and reforms. When uh, Raul Castro came in as president, uh, he made some changes. They're allowing more um, farmers, small farmers uh, who own their own uh, farms, to lease land from the state farms. The big state farms are notoriously inefficient. People don't work very hard. They're very bureaucratic. The small farms and the co-ops are very efficient because they're closer to the land. They can figure out what what actually needs, what people want to buy, et cetera. So that's a positive performance, and it has helped boost agricultural production. Cuba's got the world's largest experiment in uh, organic farming. Absolutely fascinating process going on. In the early 90s, the Soviet Union collapsed. They were unable to buy the chemical fertilizers and pesticides that they had been relying on up until that time. So of necessity, they turned to organic farming out of desperation. And the first thing that happened is their crops plummeted like 40 percent. I don't know if any of you are organic gardeners or anything like that, but imagine, you know, you, you have the frustration when your tomatoes don't come in. Well, now imagine the whole country doesn't have any tomatoes, and you get an idea of, of the difficult shape they were in. But over time, over a period of a couple of years, they boosted the production back up. they learned and made very new and interesting, innovative uh, techniques in organic farming. And today, um, estimates vary, but certainly a good chunk of the uh, food produced in Cuba and that's vegetables, meat, chickens, etc. are from organic farm. And it, what makes it really interesting is that there is no price difference between organic products and regular or products that use uh, chemicals. In the United States, you go to the market, organic products are what, double, triple, quadruple, quadruple the price of regular stuff? Let me tell you a secret, folks. That ain't because it costs that much more. You go, actually. I've done stories about this, and I actually go to the organic farmers and tell them how much does it cost you to produce this stock of broccoli or this, this organic wine or whatever. It's more expensive than the others, but it ain't twice as much. Somebody's making a lot of money because the distributors and the supermarkets have figured out there's a niche market. People are willing to pay these extremely high prices for organic produce because they think it's better. And, oh, well, if it costs so much, it must be good and, and, and because it must cost so more, and they pay it. But, in fact, they could be charging much, much less than they do and make it much more available. In the United States, organic produce is basically out of reach of ordinary working people because it's so expensive. So... But in Cuba, that's not the case. Nobody's making extra money off the organic. They're simply trying to figure out the best way to grow enough food for the country. So you have this huge debate that's going on in Cuba amongst organic farmers and agronomists and, and the press, etc. cetera. Um, and it's just a side note here, a footnote. You know, Again, back on this issue of this horrible totalitarian dictatorship where people dare not disagree, try going to a meeting of farmers sometime, like I did in Cuba, where you have these really sharp debates and nobody's thrown in jail, nobody's uh, arrested or shot for taking the wrong line. Everybody's trying to figure out how to make this thing work. And you've got people who are very firmly committed to all organic. They say, look, we've got to be all organic because it's the health of our people, it's the health, the future, the health of our, of our environment. Um, there's all kinds of reasons, and yes, we have problems producing the food, but we have to, for the long run, good of the country, we have to be all organic. And other people equally passionately say, yes, we're for organic, production, but you know, these pests are killing us and we don't have enough food though, those food shortages, as I was talking about before we've got to at least use a little bit of the pesticides and the organic uh, chemical fertilizers and they're debating all over the place and again in my book I have a chapter on organic farming and Jewish jokes and uh, what you might ask (laughs) does one have to do with the other because the agronomist that I traveled over loved to tell jokes, he's a very funny guy and he's part of this debate, he's one of these advocates of all organic farming so he would tell jokes like, uh, a farmer put an ad in a newspaper, and he said, um, uh, farmer seeks wife mid-30s, preferably with own tractor. P.S., send photo of tractor. So this gives you an idea of what passes for jokes in Cuba. So I decided to tell him Jewish jokes, and the communication was... Well, anyway, you can read all about it in the book. You're
0: listening to freelance reporter and author Reese Ehrlich today's show, Dateline Havana. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
1: So there's a very fierce debate between different kinds of, you know, advocates, and it's a real debate. I couldn't, I mean, I wouldn't even presume to tell them what to do, because this is a very, you know, you've got to have more, they've got to have more food production. There's no question about it. Uh, And how best to do that, you know, that's something the Cubans themselves are struggling to figure out. And that's the sort of thing, and that's what brings us back to the whole absurdity of the U.S. position, which is the U.S. doesn't care if there's free speech about organic farming. They only care if there's free speech about allowing the Miami Cubans to come back to power in Cuba. (laughs) That's the free speech they want to see. They want to see the free speech by the U.S.-sponsored dissidents. So it's not this neutral thing where the U.S. is happy to see, you know, of course the U.S. is all for democracy everywhere in the world, unless, of course, the wrong people win in which case we suddenly are no longer in favor of democracy. And that applies to Cuba as well. So the official position of the U.S. government, including the Obama administration, by the way, is that the U.S. embargo will stay in place against Cuba so long as the Castro brothers are in power and they do not allow free elections and uh, legalize the opposition. And what that means is if you translate that, um, we want the pro-U.S. opposition to come to power Uh, and then we will be happy to lift the embargo. It's an absurd position. Nobody in their right mind would do that. And interestingly enough, of course, you know, I mentioned all those dissidents, that even those on the U.S. payroll, none of them support the U.S. embargo. (laughs) That's a very interesting, another little detail that's left out of the dissident stories. There's nobody in Cuba that supports the embargo. Nobody. Including all the most rabid anti-communist and anti-Castro people in the island, because everybody realizes how much it hurts uh, the country. So, what's the prospects uh, for change? I think actually with the election of President Obama, it's the best potential that we've seen in a long time. The Bush administration was beholden to the most reactionary sectors of the Florida and New Jersey Cuban wealthy elite that speaks for the Cuban community. They cracked down even harder on uh, Cuba than it had been even under Clinton, and it was not good under Clinton. Basically, they refused all visas of Cubans to travel to the United States. If you're a a medical, a doctor or a a professor or a musician, you could not get a visa to visit the United States after 2004, uh, although you could have prior to 2004. Uh, They cracked down on Americans traveling as tourists to Cuba. You probably all heard these stories about the grandmother's taking a bicycle trip to Cuba, and they come back and they get hit with a $10,000 fine. That scared the bejesus out of people, and and tourism, casual tourism to Cuba dried up. Uh, They um, made it uh, illegal for Cuban-Americans to visit relatives on the island uh, more than once every three years or send more than $300 every three months, $1,200 a year. Uh, all kinds of things to make it, to try to even put the screws even harder on Cuba. None of which worked. None of which actually had any political impact on Cuba. The only thing it did was further isolate uh, the U.S. Uh, internationally as well as at home. Internationally, every year the U.N. General Assembly votes on the question of to support or not to support the U.S. embargo of Cuba. You know what the vote was last year? 184 to 3. It was the United States, Israel, and Palau voted for the U.S. position. You know where Palau is? It's an island in the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, it's one of these little tiny islands on the Pacific. And that's it. And the irony, of course, is that Israel trades with, with Cuba. So there's nobody in the world that actually upholds the U.S. embargo. So the U.S. is completely isolated internationally on this. Um, so the defeat of Bush, besides just in general being a good thing, was also very good for the potential relations with Cuba. So President Obama has said that he will uh, lift those um, restrictions on Cuban-American visits to the island and sending remittances that I mentioned before. So that's positive. But that's only affecting Cuban-Americans. Vice President Biden said that the embargo stays in place. Uh, He made that as an offhanded response to a Latin American journalist a matter of a couple weeks ago. But what's very interesting is that there's all kinds of grassroots tumult coming from below and from Congress. So Dick Lugar, a conservative Republican senator, he's the ranking Republican senator on the Foreign Relations Committee, he said there has to be a complete overhaul of the U.S. policy on Cuba. He's called for an end to the travel ban. The House and the Senate have both bipartisan bills that have been uh, introduced in both the House and the Senate calling for a complete lift of the travel ban and and complete uh, lifting of the embargo, which is very significant. The um, farm state lobby is very strongly opposed to the embargo. Why? Because they sell a billion dollars worth of food to Cuba. Wheat, soybeans, rice, and chicken parts. So those chicken wings are big down in Cuba. Uh, A billion dollars. The U.S. is now the largest food exporter of any country in the world to Cuba. So there's a lot of farmers in the Midwest. I spoke in South Dakota. So it was an audience like this, you know, of students. And uh, there was a lot of guys in uh, winter vests and, like, John Deere hats because they were the farmers there who want to know how come we can't trade, why can't sell more of my soybeans to Cuba, you know. Uh, So there's really a broad space. It's not just liberals on the coast and so on versus the – the the right-wing Cubans in uh, New Jersey and uh, Florida. And what's absolutely the most fascinating is Cuba has discovered oil offshore, off the island. And they say there's 20 billion barrels of oil in reserves. Nobody knows exactly how much. That's an estimate. Uh, You don't know until you start drilling. But for sure, there's a lot of oil off the coast of Cuba. And they've already given licenses to oil companies from Brazil and Venezuela and China, and Norway and Spain and various other countries to come explore for oil. But they've held aside some of the leases for American oil companies. And as soon as some other foreign oil company discovers oil, you watch how quickly that embargo is going to disappear. Because those oil companies are going to go, oh, wait a minute. Uh, Brazil gets to drill this oil and we don't? Uh, wait a minute. Um, so that's, that's my prediction. So there is a very interesting groundswell of opposition to U.S. policy. There's groups like Pastors for Peace and the Venceremos Brigade that are sending people to Cuba, taking hurricane relief. They're breaking the embargo. They're publicly announcing it. They're engaging in civil disobedience. There's sister city relationships like my hometown of Oakland has a sister city relationship with uh, Santiago de Cuba. They're sending a delegation. Uh, The Congressional Black Caucus just had seven congresspeople. Barbara Lee from Oakland uh, headed it up. Uh, They just came back yesterday, I think. Um, So there is this very interesting renewal of interest in the issue of Cuba, but it's going to take pressure from below. The Obama administration, frankly, like anything else, like the Middle East peace, like Iran, like the economy, left to its own devices, the Obama administration is going to take a very centrist Democratic Party position, and they ain't going to do diddly-squat on Cuba. But with pressure from below... Whether it's from grassroots groups, from Congress people, from business people, I think there's a real potential uh, for change. And just as an indication of the kind of change that's out there, I consider myself a uh, sober optimist. I like to th- be very optimistic about change. I think it's the best chances we've had for change here, certainly in, in the last eight years. Uh, but I, I'm looking soberly at the chances for change. And I hope you, you, you'll join me in, in uh, being a sober optimist. Thank you very much. So happy to take questions. Okay, the question was, I'm going to repeat the questions for the radio. Uh, The question was about the Cuban Five and any chance for their release. Let me, for those of you who might not be familiar, let me take it back a couple steps. The Cuban Five were um, five uh, agents of Cuba who had come to the United States and infiltrated these right-wing terrorist groups in South Florida. And by terrorist groups, I don't use that term lightly. It's, the term is thrown around a lot. But when you intentionally uh, plant bombs in hotels with the intention of killing civilians, or you take a speedboat and run it into Cuban waters and spray a hotel, a civilian hotel, with machine gun, that's terrorism. It's attempting or killing civilians with the intention of causing you know your... your affecting your kind of political change. Well, the Cubans sent these people in to infiltrate some of these right-wing groups in South Florida. When it became clear that they were going to launch an attack on Cuba, the Cubans went to the FBI and said, look, we've got proof that these guys, this, this group, these individuals, are about to attack Cuba. Uh, stop them. And the FBI, instead of taking efforts to stop them, figured out from the information they were giving... Who the spies were, and arrested a number of people, ultimately five got put on trial. So they were put on trial for espionage, or no, sorry, for conspiracy to commit espionage, and as unregistered foreign agents. Remember the thing about handing out dollar bills and being a foreign agent, et cetera? Okay. So they were convicted in a federal court in Miami. Not exactly the most unbiased uh, place to draw jurors from uh, in uh, Miami. Uh, they On one appeal, it was overturned because of the uh, denial of their transferring uh, jurisdiction. The, the, the court had refused to move the trial out of Miami, but then that appeal itself was overturned. So they're all doing long jail sentences in federal prisons in various parts of the U.S. And their wives who wanted to come visit them from Cuba have been denied visas, so they can't get family visits. Um, the appeal process continues. It's on its way up to the Supreme Court as best as I remember. Um, That's kind of an objective explanation of what the case is about. I don't think they're going to be freed by going through the appeals process in the U.S. courts. I don't think the Supreme Court, given how conservative it is, is going to overturn the previous rulings. What I do think will happen... It's a very big case in Cuba. If you go to Cuba... You'll see posters all over the place and leaflets and TV shows about Los Cinco, the five. And I think what will happen is that if the U.S. moves to normalize relations with Cuba, the Cuban government is going to push very hard to get these guys released in prison. And there will probably be some kind of a prisoner exchange. So the Cuban government will agree to... Really, in fact, yeah, Raúl Castro has already offered to do this—to free X number of political prisoners in return for freeing these guys from the prisons. And then the U.S. can say, "Well, it was part of a prisoner exchange. It wasn't because these guys were innocent." Blah 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 blah, and they'll be out of prison. I think that's the, probably their best chance. Yes, sir. Yeah. The, my view about the changes in the upper echelons of the Cuban government—that's a tough one. Um, and basically, again, the facts are that mm, may, roughly two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Uh, two of the probably best-known younger members of the ruling cabinet of the state, the state council, uh, Carlos Lage and um, that's right, Perizor, uh were removed. Um, and at the time, and then there was a number of other people less known were also removed. At the time, there was a lot of speculation in the U.S. press that this was Raul asserting his control over... The people that Fidel had appointed but then the next day Fidel um, issued a statement of a column you know he writes uh, uh, these kind of blogs basically that get published in the newspapers there uh, saying that they had succumbed to the sweet honey of of careerism and of, of, of power uh, so obviously he was in agreement with, the, with their removal but the problem is and this is a problem a wider problem in Cuba is nobody and then these two guys not only resigned their position they resigned from the communist party um so I could speculate as to what it is, Some, you know, but basically I don't know. And frankly, I don't think anybody outside of the very highest reaches in the Cuban government knows. That's one of my criticisms of the Cuban government, and, and again, I have a whole chapter of, uh, on this question of democracy, is that the change in Cuba comes from the top. It doesn't come from below. And so when you get changes like this, basically you have to accept it because if you're living in Cuba – uh, and without, without knowing, maybe eventually it'll, it'll come out. Maybe it was debates over economic reforms. I know after Fidel dies and certainly after Raul dies, there's going to be a lot of debate about economic reforms. But whether that was at the core of this one, I, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows.
0: You're listening to freelance reporter and author Reese Ehrlich. Today's show, Dateline Havana. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
1: Yes, Here. Yeah. Okay. Um, was I living there as an American journalist, and was I watched, and did I have to have my articles approved? Yes, no, no. <laughs> that is, uh, yes, I was there. They knew I was a journalist. I was living there uh, officially. I went uh, as you're supposed to do and, and follow the procedures. Foreign journalists are not t- surveilled. If I was, I mean, partly I was only there for a month, and that is different than, say, someone working for AP or CNN who's, who's got an office there. And I, I, don't, I don't think those people are surveilled. They don't like to have people stationed outside their offices following there. but I suspect their phones are bugged or their emails are watched. I, I think that's a reasonable assumption. The, uh, there's no censorship. Uh, if you file, if, uh, if I didn't, as it turns out, I didn't file stories while I was there. I filed them after I came back, but I could have, and they're not censored. Um, basically, if you're a foreign reporter and they don't like what you report and you do it often enough, they throw you out of the country. <laughs> that's, that's the penalty. But they don't censor your stories prior to publication. Or they close your office. They have various degrees of, <laughs> of uh, cracking down. From the standpoint of the Cuban government, they really don't trust American reporters. I don't know why. Uh, so... That's, uh, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, um, so they really don't trust them. And th- there's this constant battle because uh, some of the stuff they, t- they turn out is correct and the Cuban government doesn't like it. And some of it's propaganda and the Cuban government doesn't like it. And there's this constant back and forth going on. Yes, sir. So this is a question having to do with the old U.S.-owned sugar plantations in Cuba and who would uh, benefit, I mean, who would claim it now. Very, I'll, I will be very happy to answer that. Let me give a little bit of background. In 1959, remember the Cuban Revolution was January 1st, 1959. Uh, Meyer Lansky and uh, Michael Corleone were forced out of uh, Cuba. in <laughs> that famous scene from Godfather Part 2 you're all familiar with. That was the night of the Cuban Revolution. And long before Cuba uh, declared itself socialist, long before it uh, allied with the Soviet Union, uh, in the spring of one thousand nine hundred and fifty nine the, the new Cuban government uh, moved to uh, confiscate the large land holdings, which are mostly u s land holdings and distributed to small farmers, so the sugarcane plantations and the other uh, large cattle operations etc and the Cuban government offered to reimburse the us companies for their land and their property at the rate based on what they had, the taxes they had been paying. Well, of course, the U.S. companies were outraged because they had been cheating on their taxes for 50 years. So they weren't about to accept the value of their farms based on the actual taxes they had been paying. How dare you, communists? And that was what, that's what turned the U.S. attitude towards the Cuban Revolution. It had nothing to do with all this other uh, exp- you know, stuff. The U- they, were, they were making uh, um, the U.S. companies pay for the uh, exploitation that they had been making of Cuba for years. And the U.S. companies went to the the Dulles brothers and to the um, Eisenhower administration. And that's what began the first sanctions. It wasn't the embargo, but the first sanctions against Cuba were imposed after that. And U.S. policy then proceeded to to do everything it could to overthrow the Cuban government. So now we're 50 years later. Uh, Some of those folks are dead you know, uh, there, it, it is a monumental mess, an absolute monumental mess, because there's Cuban assets that were frozen in 1959-60 in that period, and everybody wants a piece of it. And people, the brothers to the rescue who were shot down, they got a piece of it, and the, uh, the Bacardi family and the sugarcane, the Fonjules, and the, all these wealthy businessmen, because it's, it was millions of dollars and it has been sitting there collecting interest, so it's you know hundreds of millions of dollars. And everybody's got claims on it, and the, the U.S. government is holding on to it. So part of that, in any ultimate settlement, the official excuse for the U.S. embargo, by the way, is that the Cuban government illegally confiscated U.S. property, And that has to be paid back. That's the official justification for the um, embargo. So what will really happen is once the U.S. has made a decision we're going to change policy towards Cuba, they'll sit down and they'll negotiate and they'll say – you owe us $1 billion for the accumulated value of these sugarcane plantations. And, but we've got $100 million over here, so you only owe us $900 million. And the Cubans will say, but you owe us $80 billion for the impact of the embargo over the last 50 years, so you owe us a million. And they'll sit down and they'll work out a deal, and basically the U.S. will distribute the money it's been holding all these years. The Cuban government's not going to put up any more money, and they'll, 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 they'll do it. They'll make a deal, just like they'll do some kind of prisoner exchange and free some of the political prisoners. It'll all be part of a political bargaining process, Um, and those big U.S. companies might get some kind of pennies on the dollar when they're finished. Yes. Why would the U.S. be holding some of the oil leases for American companies? Because they want the American companies to put pressure on the U.S. government to lift the embargo. Uh, It's not too hard to figure out, and uh, the oil companies, you know, if they put their mind to it, they can get a lot done. (laughs) Witness recent wars, uh, and it's going to be it's going to be very very interesting because of course the right wing is going to go completely nutso if the Cubans start doing offshore drilling environmentalists may well because they're going to say oh my god you can't drill within American waters but you can you know Cuba is not that far away what if there's an oil spill and so it's going to be a huge issue and the Cubans obviously do have to be careful about environmental issues um, but they have the right to drill for oil. Within their territorial waters, and they desperately need oil. And it would make a huge difference for their economy. So the oil companies, when if they actually find the oil in the amounts that the Cubans claim, the oil companies are going to say, "Wait a minute, we can't drill in Florida waters, but ten miles down the pike, <laughs> we can drill in Cuba. We're going for it. Let's get rid of this embargo thing. That's a part. Of All of a sudden, you know, you're already hearing that the Chamber of Commerce and various business groups are arguing against the uh, embargo very strongly, and that'll intensify." Yes, sir. What are the chances the U.S. will give the Guantanamo back to Cuba? That will be the very last in the list. of <laughs> Remember, after the after the sugar barons get their money, and <laughs> after all the political prisoners are freed, and the Cuban Five are let go, and you have normal diplomatic relations, then maybe they'll get around to Guantanamo. The Cubans have demanded it, and of course, it's their right. The U.S. stole it from Cuba in 1901. Uh, I don't know if you know the history at all to this, but. Uh, after the Spanish-American War in which the U.S. had promised the revolutionaries of Cuba that they would be independent, the U.S. sent in a uh, colonial administrator and the army and didn't recognize any of the Cuban revolutionaries, uh, brought in Cubans from the United States uh, to run Cuba, and then planned to keep it basically as a colony, and then the, the people of Cuba got very angry at that. So, but part of the deal for allowing Cuba, Cuban independence was the Platt Amendment, was an amendment passed by a Senator Platt, and it uh, called for US control of all customs revenues, that is, control of the finances of Cuba the uh, U.S. right to intervene militarily in Cuba whenever the United States wanted, which it then proceeded to do three times after that, and ceding Guantanamo as a naval base, uh, coaling refueling fueling a naval base to the United States Navy, basically in perpetuity. It got renewed again in the 1930s. So the U.S. stole it fair and square, just like it stole the Panama Canal and a bunch of other things. Um, but... Um, I think, that will change. I think the U.S. will give back uh, Guantanamo only at the end of a very long process and with a lot of pressure. And there's no particular reason to have it there. Oh, my favorite, just one more thing about Guantanamo, my absolute favorite one is that um, when the United States, when the Bush administration decided to use Guantanamo as an illegal prison and torture camp, uh, it, when it was brought into court, it made the argument to the U.S. Supreme Court that the U.S. Supreme Court had no jurisdiction over Guantanamo because Guantanamo was under Cuban sovereignty. It wasn't U.S. territory. It was Cuban territory. Therefore, the U.S. had no right... The Supreme Court had no jurisdiction. Yet when the Cubans say, okay, we have sovereignty, give it back. They say, "You, what are you talking about? We, we own this. We negotiated this fair and square. It's ours. So, of course, the Bush administration wanted to have it both ways. Well, okay, the question was... Um, about the uh, U.S.-Soviet uh, agreement, the, the U.S. agreed not to uh, invade Cuba in 1962 after, uh, 63 after uh, the Soviet missiles were withdrawn. That's true. We, although it wasn't admitted at the time, we now know from the historic record that the, uh, the great victory of the U.S. in uh, forcing the removal of the missiles had two secret uh, side agreements as part of it. One was the U.S. would remove its missiles from Turkey, which was on the border of the Soviet Union, which it did about six months later, and that the U.S. agreed not to invade Cuba again, as it had done with the Bay of Pigs. And the U.S. did live up to that in in the technical sense. But the U.S. did everything in its power to overthrow the Cuban government short of an outright U.S. invasion, including uh, sending terrorists in to burn down department stores and burn cane fields, uh, spread hemorrhagic fever, spread swine fever, spread moths that uh, were... uh, uh, infected with diseases. We're talking about chemical and biological warfare. And I know some people, they, they go, what, the U.S. did that? How come I never heard about that? Well, that's why we're here at Project Censored. Uh, but again, I, in my book, I go into much de- greater detail uh, exactly on that. There's a long history of, of really dastardly uh, attempts of, over, Fidel says over 600 attempts on his life alone. For sure, many of those uh, happened. So the U.S. did everything in its power to effect regime change in Cuba. Which is why the Cubans are a little bit worried about these dissidents and, and uh, press reports. it's not like it's an unfounded fear of the United States. Um but uh yeah, the US has not has lived up to the formal letter of that agreement. Last question. Yeah. Right. What what's the real reason for the US embargo, if I may shorten your question, right? Okay. Um yeah, I I think the U.S. could never get over the fact that it can't control and dominate Cuba. That's at the heart of it. So when the Cubans moved to uh, confiscate the U.S. large sugarcane and other agricultural holdings, that was what part of it. Um, the Cubans uh, wanted the right to refine Cuban oil in the refineries. Well, that sent the U.S. around the bend. So the Cubans didn't want to be under the thumb of the U.S., and that's at the heart of the embargo. Um, And one of the more interesting parts of the uh, recent Bush uh, administration and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, if you can say anything good came out of those, was the fact that it couldn't devote its normal attention to South America, (laughs) where it's used to overthrowing governments. There's now leftist governments or left-of-center governments in virtually all of South America, um, with a couple of exceptions. And they're all friendly to Cuba. Cuba. And Cuba is not isolated at all as it was, the, the, as the US had tried to do and was successful in the 60s. So I think it's going to have to be the US policy that changes in lifting the embargo. do I don't think it's going to be the other way around. There's something happening Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with over there.
0: You've been listening to Reese Ehrlich. Today's show has been Dateline Havana. Reese Ehrlich reports regularly for CBC, ABC Australia, Radio Deutsche Well, and National Public Radio. His television documentaries have aired on PBS stations nationwide. Rhys Ehrlich first worked as a staff writer and research editor for Ramparts magazine in San Francisco from 1963 to 1975. He taught journalism for 10 years at San Francisco State University and California State University Hayward. Reese Ehrlich is author of The Iran Agenda, The Real Story of U.S. Policy and the Middle East Crisis, and co-author of Target Iraq, What the News Media Didn't Tell You. His latest book, Dateline Havana, The Real Story of U.S. Policy and the Future of Cuba, was published in January 2009. Visit his website at www.reeseerlich.com. That's R-E-E-S-E erlic Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, call 510- 848-6767 extension 628 or email us at That's blfaulkner at yahoo.com That's B-L-F-A-U-L K-N-E-R at yahoo.com Our website, GunsAndButter.net is under reconstruction. Up and take control of your own cypher and be on the lookout for those spirit sniper trying to steal your life you know what i'm saying look what decides yourself for peace give thanks live life and release you dig me you got me